Section 19 of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 4, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anne Boulay. Anne of Cleves, Part 3. After the divorce, Anne continued to reside at her palace at Richmond, and on the 6th of August, Henry honored her with a visit. She received him with a pleasant countenance, and treated him with all due respect, which put him in such high good humor, that he supped with her merrily, and demeaned himself so lovingly, and with such singular graciousness, that some of the bystanders fancied he was going to take her for his queen again. There is little doubt, however, that he was already married to her beautiful young rival, Catherine Howard, whom two days afterwards he publicly introduced to his court as his queen. Perhaps he considered it prudent to pay a previous visit to Anne, to ascertain whether any objection would be raised on her part, to investing another with her lawful title. Anne wisely treated the affair with complacency. The Duke of Cleves wept with bitter mortification when he received the account of his sister's wrongs, and found himself precluded from testifying the indignation they inspired. Anne, on the contrary, manifested the most lively satisfaction at having regained her freedom. The yoke of which Henry complained had, certainly, been no silken bond to her, and no sooner was she fairly released from it, than she exhibited a degree of vivacity she had never shown during her matrimonial probation. Marillac says, This is marvellous prudence on her part, though some consider it stupidity but that which seemed to make the greatest impression on our diplomatic gossip was that she every day put on a rich new dress, each more wonderful than the last, which made two things very apparent. First, that she did not take the loss of Henry very much to heart, and secondly, that her bridal trousseau was of a very magnificent description. Bad as Henry's conduct was to his rejected consort, one of the kings of France behaved still more dishonorably under similar circumstances, for he not only sent his affianced bride back with contempt, but detained her costly wardrobe and jewels for the use of a lady who found more favor in his sight. Marillac tells his sovereign, September 3rd, 1540, Madame of Cleves has a more joyous countenance than ever. She wears a great variety of dresses, and passes all her time in sports and recreations. From His Excellency's next report of the 17th of the same month, we gather that the divorced queen was said to be in a situation which would, if it had really been the case, have placed the king in a peculiar state of embarrassment, between his passion for his beautiful young bride, and his frantic desire of increasing his family. Yet Marillac observes, in his dispatch of November 1st, that no more is said of the repudiated queen than if she were dead. Anne passed her time very comfortably, nevertheless, at her Richmond palace, or among the more sequestered bowers of Ham, and in the exercise of all the gentle charities of life, pursued the even tenor of her way. Her brother could not be induced to admit the invalidity of the marriage, and the Bishop of Bath, who had been sent over to reconcile him, if possible, to the arrangement into which Anne had entered, could get no further declaration from him than this. He was glad his sister had fared no worse. In the first steps of the divorce, an option was given to Anne as to her residence, either in England or abroad, yet the liberty of choice was illusory. 
the divorce jointure of three thousand pounds per annum was made up of many detached grants of crown lands among which the confiscated possessions of cromwell stand conspicuous but to all these grants the condition of her residence in england was attached a prudent regard to her pecuniary interests therefore in all probability withheld this much injured princess from returning to her fatherland and the fond arms of that mother who had reluctantly resigned her to a royal husband so little worthy of possessing a wife of lowly and gentle conditions meekly as anne demeaned herself in her retirement a jealous watch was kept on her proceedings and the correspondence of herself and household by king henry's ministers as we find by the following entry in the privy council book of july twenty second fifteen forty one william sheffield lately one of the retinue at calais was apprehended for having said he had letters from the lady anne of cleves to the duke of norfolk and was brought before the council and searched when it was found that his letters were only from one edward bindings of calais to mrs howard the old duchess of norfolk's woman to mrs catherine Bisset, and mrs simpson the lady anne of cleves women which were but letters of friendship from private individuals yet he was committed for further examination the investigation came to nothing the good sense and amiable temper of anne preserved her from involving herself in any of the political intrigues of the times and she with truly queenly dignity avoided all appearance of claiming the sympathy of any class of henry's subjects but though she avoided the snares of party she was not so much forgotten by the people of england as the french ambassador imagined the friends of the reformation regarded her as the king's lawful wife and vainly hoped the time would come when cloyed with the charms of the youthful beauty for whom he had discarded her he would fling his idol from him as he had done the once adored anne boleyn and reinstate the injured fleming to her rights within the sixteen months after anne of cleves had been compelled to resign the crown matrimonial of england the fall of her fair successor took place when the news reached anne's quiet little court at richmond of the explosion which had filled the royal bowers of hampton with confusion and precipitated queen catherine from a throne to a prison the excitement among the female portion of anne's household could not be restrained the domestic troubles of the king were regarded by them as an immediate visitation of retributive justice for the unfounded aspersions he had cast upon their virtuous mistress the feelings of some of these ladies carried them so far beyond the bounds of prudence that two of them jane ratsey and elizabeth Bassett, were summoned before the council and committed to prison for having said what is god working his own work to make lady anne of cleves queen again jane ratsey added many praises of the lady anne with disqualifying remarks on queen catherine and said it was impossible that so sweet a queen as the lady anne could be utterly put down to which elizabeth Bassett rejoined what a man the king is how many wives will he have the ladies were very sternly questioned by the council as to their motives for presuming to utter such audacious comments on the matrimonial affairs of the sovereign on which elizabeth Bassett, being greatly alarmed endeavored to excuse herself by saying she was so greatly astounded at the tidings of queen catherine's naughty behavior that she must have lost her senses when she permitted herself to give utterance to treasonable words what a man the king is how many more wives will he have 
Two days after, a more serious matter connected with Anne was brought before the council, for it was confidently reported that she had been brought to bed of a fair boy, of which the king was the father, but that she had neither apprised him or his cabinet of the fact. This rumor threw both Henry and his council into great perplexity, especially as the capricious monarch had honored his discarded consort with several private visits at her palace of Richmond, and it is moreover evident that Anne had actually passed some days at the royal residence of Hampton Court as the guest of Henry and his young queen, which seemed to give color to the tale. Henry expressed himself as highly displeased with the ladies and officers of state at Richmond for not having apprised him of the supposed situation of the ex-queen. The affair came to nothing and proved to be an unfounded scandal, which originated in some impertinent busybody's comment on an illness that confined poor Anne to her bed at this momentous period. The said scandal was traced by the council from one inveterate gossip to another, through no less than six persons, as we learn from the following minutes of their proceedings, forming a curious interlude in the examinations touching Henry's other queen, Catherine Howard. We examine also, partly before dinner and partly after, a new matter, being a report that Lady Anne of Cleves should be delivered of a fair boy, and whose should it be but the king's majesty's, which is a most abominable slander, and for this time necessary to be met withal. This matter was told to Taverner of the Signet, more than a fortnight ago, both by his mother-in-law, Lambert's wife, the goldsmith, and by Taverner's own wife, who saith she heard it from Lilgrave's wife, and Lambert's wife heard it also from the old lady Carew. Taverner kept it, or concealed it, but they, the women, with others, have made it common matter of talk. Taverner never revealed it till Sunday night, at which time he told it to Dr. Cox, to be further declared if he thought good, who immediately disclosed it to me, the Lord Privy Seal. We have committed Taverner to the custody of me, the Bishop of Winchester, likewise Lambert's wife, who seemeth to have been a dunce in it, to Mr. the Chancellor of the Augmentations. Absurd as the report was, it made a wonderful impression on the mind of the king, who occupied a ludicrous position in the eyes of Europe, as the husband of two living wives, who were both the subjects of a delicate investigation at the same moment. The attention of the Privy Council was distracted, between the evidences on the respective charges against the rival queens for nearly a fortnight, a fact that has never been named in history. How obstinate Henry's suspicions of his ill-treated Flemish consort were, may be seen by the following order to his council. His majesty thinketh it requisite to have it groundly, or thoroughly, examined, and further ordered by your discretions, as the matter of the case requireth, to inquire diligently, whether the said Anne of Cleves hath indeed had a child or no, as it is brooded, or reported, for his majesty hath been informed that it is so indeed, in which part his majesty imputeth a great default in her officers, for not advising his highness thereof, if it be true. Not doubting but your lordships will groundly examine the same, and finding the truth of the whole matter, will advise his majesty thereof accordingly. Dorothy Wingfield, one of the Lady Anne's bedchamber women, and the officers of her household, were subjected to a strict examination before the council, and it was not till the 30th of December that they came to the decision 
that Francis Lilgrave, widow, having slandered the Lady Anne of Cleves, and touched also the king's person, she affirming to have heard the report of others, whom she refused to name, should be for her punishment committed to the tower, and Richard Taverner, clerk of the signet, also for concealing the same. No sooner was Anne cleared from this imputation, than a great effort was made by her brother, and the Protestant party, to effect a reunion between her and the king. The Duke of Cleves evidently imagined that the disgrace of the new queen was neither more nor less than the first move of the king and his ministers towards a reconciliation with Anne. The Duke's ambassadors opened the business to the Earl of Southampton, to whom Oslinger also wrote a pressing letter, urging the expediency of such a measure. Southampton communicated the particulars to the king of his interview with the ambassadors on the subject, and enclosed Oslinger's letter, but was certainly too well aware of Henry's opinion of the lady to venture to the second, the representations of the court of Cleves. The next attempt was made by the ambassadors on Cramner, which is thus related by him in the following curious letter to the king. It may please your majesty to be advised that yesterday the ambassador of Cleve came to my house at Lambeth and delivered to me letters from Oslinger, vice-chancellor to the Duke of Cleve, the purport whereof is nothing else but to commend to me the cause of the Lady Anne of Cleve, which, though he trusted I should do of myself, yet he saith the occasion is such that he will not put spurs to a horse which runneth of his own courage. When I had read the letter, and considered that no cause was expressed specially, but only in general that I should have commended the cause of the Lady Anne of Cleve. After some demur, the ambassador came to the point, and plainly asked me to effect the reconciliation, whereunto I answered, that I thought it not a little strange, that Oslinger should think it meet for me to move a reconciliation of that matrimony, of the which I, as much as any other person, knew most just causes of divorce. Cramner then declared he could take no steps in the matter unless the king should command him. But, continued he, I shall signify the same to his highness, and thereupon you shall have an answer. Now what shall be your majesty's pleasure that I should do, whether to make a general answer to Oslinger by writing, or that I shall make a certain answer in this point to the ambassador by mouth? I most humbly beseech your majesty that I may be advertised, and accordingly thereto I shall order myself, by the grace of God, whom I beseech daily to have your majesty evermore in his protection and governance. From my manner of Lambeth, this Tuesday, the 13th of January, your grace's most bounded chaplain and bedesman. T. Cantarien. Cramner, warned by the fate of Cromwell, ventured not to urge the king to put his head a second time into the yoke with his discarded consort, and the negotiation came to nothing. Perhaps Anne herself was unwilling to risk her life by entering again into the perilous thraldom from which she had been once released. The tragic fate of her fair young rival must have taught her to rejoice that she had saved her own head by resigning a crown without a struggle. In June 1543, Anne received a friendly visit from her stepdaughter, the Princess Mary, who stayed with her some days, and on her departure gave very liberal largesses to the officers of the household, from the gentlemen ushers down to the servants of the scullery department. In the August of the same year, Anne's mother, the widowed Duchess of Cleves, died. Early in the following year, Anne sent the Princess Mary a present of Spanish sewing or embroidery silk. 
no event of any importance occurred to break the peaceful tenor of anne's life till the death of henry the eighth in the first letter of edward seymour afterwards the duke of somerset to the council of regency he gives the following directions if ye have not already advertised my lady anne of cleves of king henry's death it shall be well done if ye send some express person for the same this event left the ill-treated princess at full liberty had she wished to marry or to return to her own country but of marriage anne had had an evil specimen and with greater wisdom than henry's other widow catherine parr she retained her independence by remaining in single blessedness she had acquired the english language and english habits and formed an intimate friendship with henry's daughter the princess mary who was a few months older than herself as well as the young elizabeth to whom she appears to have behaved with great tenderness england had therefore become her country and it was natural that she should prefer a residence where she was honored and loved by all to whom her excellent qualities were known to returning to her native land after the public affronts that had been put upon her by the coarse-minded tyrant to whom she had been sacrificed by her family besides these cogent reasons her property in england required her personal care as it was subjected to some mutations by the new government of which the records of the times afford proofs among others the following letter from anne to her former stepdaughter anne of cleves to princess mary madam after my most hearty commendations to your grace being very desirous to hear of your prosperous health wherein i very much rejoice it may please you to be advertised that it hath pleased the king's majesty to have in exchange my manor in lands of bisham in the county of berkshire granting me to recompense the house of westrop in suffolk with the two parks and certain manors thereunto adjoining notwithstanding if it had been his majesty's pleasure i was well contented to have continued without exchange after which grant for mine own assurance in that behalf i have travailed to my great cost and charge almost this twelve months it hath passed the king's majesty's bill signed and the privy seal being now as i am informed stayed at the great seal for that you madam be minded to have the same not knowing as i suppose of the said grant i have also received at this michaelmas last past part of the rent of the aforesaid manors considering the premises and for the amity which hath always been between us of which i most heartily desire the continuance that it may please you therefore to ascertain me by your letters or otherwise as it shall stand with your pleasure and thus good madam i commit you unto the ever-living god to have you in merciful keeping from my house of bletchingly the eighth day of january anno fifteen fifty three your assured loving friend to her little power to command anna the daughter of cleves the last public appearance of Anne of Cleves was at the coronation of Queen Mary, where she had her place in the regal procession, and rode in the same carriage with the Princess Elizabeth, with whom she was always on the most affectionate terms. That precedence which Henry the Eighth ensured to her she always enjoyed, nor did any of the ladies of the royal family attempt to dispute it with her. But her happiness appears to have been in the retirement of domestic life two of her brothers william duke of cleves and his successor john william 
were subject to mental malady and died insane but nothing appears to have ever ruffled the tranquil temperament of this amiable princess who in the most difficult and trying situations conducted herself with great prudence after the celebration of queen mary's marriage with philip of spain at winchester anne of cleves addressed the royal bride a congratulatory epistle in which being evidently perplexed by the undefined dignity of queen regnant she rings the changes on the titles majesty highness and grace in a singular manner to the queen's majesty after my humble commendations unto your majesty with thanks for your loving favour showed to me in my last suit and praying of your highness your loving continuance it may please your highness to understand that i am informed of your grace's return to london again and being desirous to do my duty to see your majesty and the king if it may so stand with your highness's pleasure and that i may know when and where i shall wait on your majesty and his wishing you both much joy and felicity with increase of children to god's glory and to the preservation of your prosperous estates long to continue with honour is all godly virtue from my poor house at hever the fourth of august your highnesses to command anna the daughter of cleves endorsed the lady anne of cleves to the queen's majesty august fourth fifteen fifty four anne retained property at bletchingly after this exchange in proof whereof is her receipt early in the reign of queen mary to sir thomas cardon who was master of the revels at the court of henry the eighth his son and daughter this document signed by her own hand is among the loosely manuscripts dated the last day of december first year of philip and mary fifteen fifty three received of sir thomas cardon knight the day and year above written for one quarter of a year's rent due unto us by the same sir thomas cardon at this feast of christmas according to an indenture bearing date the second day of october in the year aforesaid the sum of eight pounds thirteen shillings nine pence in full contentation satisfaction and payment of our rents at bletchingly and our lands there and in clear discharge of the same rents to this present day before dated we have to these letters being our acquaintance subscribed our name for his discharge anna daughter of cleves anne of cleves spent much of her time at a residence she had at dartford being one of the suppressed abbeys which henry the eighth had turned into a hunting seat and edward the sixth had given it into the bargain when the exchange was made between bletchingly and penshurst she was abiding at dartford the year before her death when sir thomas cardon her tenant at bletchingly who appears to have been likewise her man of business on all occasions came to her at dartford and she begged him to get certain stores laid in at the blackfriars for her residence against she came to london which request was made before the officers of her household for her grace lacked money to buy the needful furniture and she promised payment to sir thomas if he would make the purchases for her but the amount was left unpaid at the death of anne of cleves and it appears from sir thomas cardon's account she was without money at the time she requested him to make the purchases of his outlay the loosely manuscripts furnish items her cellar he furnishes with three hogsheads of gascoigne wine at three pounds each ten gallons of monsey at twenty pence per gallon eleven gallons of muscadel at two shillings two pence per gallon and sack ten gallons at sixteen pence per gallon the spicery had a stock of three pounds of ginger three shillings 
of cinnamon three ounces fifteen pence cloves and mace six ounces pepper one pound two shillings four pence raisins two pounds at two pence per pound while two pounds of prunes cost three pence three muttons at seven shillings each twenty capons and a dozen lower price cost six shillings two dozen rabbits cost three shillings in the pastry department was laid in one bushel of fine wheat flour at the great cost of six shillings per bushel thirty loads of coal were laid in at sixteen shillings the load a vast many faggots and billets and three dozen rushes for strewing the floors at twenty pence the dozen in the chandry sir thomas carden had provided thirty-five pounds of wax lights sixes and fours to the pound and prickets which last were stuck on a pike to be burnt these wax candles were one shilling per pound staff torches were provided at one shilling four pence apiece and white lights eighteen dozen over and above sundry fair pots of pewter by the said sir thomas bought and provided to serve in the buttery for lady anne's household likewise brass iron and laden pots pans kettles skillets ladles skimmers spits trays and flaskets with divers other utensils and properties furnished to the value of nine pounds six shillings eight pence some of which were broken spoiled and lost and the rest remained at his house to his use for which he asks no compensation likewise two dozen of fair new pewter candlesticks delivered for her grace's chandry and chambers the whole account finishes with a remark that he provided sundry kinds of fresh fish as carps pikes and tenches at the request of her grace which are privately dressed in her grace's laundry for the trial of cookery by which it has been surmised that anne made private experiments in the noble culinary art anne possessed the placid domestic virtues which seemed in a manner indigenous to german princesses she was says hollingshed who lived in her century a lady of right commendable regard courteous gentle a good housekeeper and very bountiful to her servants she spent her time at the head of her own little court which was a happy household within itself and we may presume well governed for we hear neither of plots nor quarrels tale-bearings nor mischievous intrigues as rife in her home circle she was tenderly beloved by her domestics and well attended by them in her last sickness she died at the age of forty-one of some declining illness which she took calmly and patiently her will is a very naive production showing the most minute attention to all things that could benefit her own little domestic world it was made but two days before her death being dated july twelfth and fifteenth fifteen seventy seven it is when divested of tautologies as follows we anna daughter of john late duke of cleves and sister to the excellent prince william now reigning duke of cleves gulick juliers m barre sick in body but whole in mind and memory thanks be to almighty god declare this to be our last will and testament first we give and bequeath our soul to the holy trinity and our body to be buried where it shall please god secondly we most heartily pray our executors under named to be humble suitors for us and in our name to the queen's most excellent majesty that our debts may be truly contented and paid to every one of our creditors and that they will see the same justly answered for our discharge beseeching also the queen's highness of her clemency to grant unto our executors 
the receipts of our land accustomed to be due at michaelmas towards the payment of our creditors for that is not the moiety of our revenues nor payment wholly at that time and not able to answer the charge of our household especially this year the price of all cattle and other acats or purchases exceeding the old rate thirdly we earnestly require our said executors to be good lords and masters to all our poor servants to whom we give and bequeath every one of them being in our check roll as well as to our officers as others taking wages either from the queen's highness or from us from the current month of july one whole year's wages also as much black cloth as thirteen shillings four pence per yard as will make them each a gown and hood and to every one of our gentlemen waiters and gentlewomen accordingly and to our yeomen grooms and children of our household two yards each of black cloth at nine shillings the yard also to every one of the gentlewomen of our privy chamber for their great pains taken with us to mrs wingfield one hundred pounds twenty pounds to susan broughton towards her marriage to dorothy curzon towards her marriage one hundred pounds and to mrs haymond twenty pounds to twelve other ladies who seem in the like degree she bequeathed various sums from ten pounds to sixteen pounds each to our laundress elizabeth elliot ten pounds and to mother lovell this was the nurse of her sick-room for her attendance upon us in this time of our sickness ten pounds item we give and bequeath to every one of our gentlemen daily attendant on us over and beside our former bequests namely wages in black cloth ten pounds that is to say to thomas blackrobe ten pounds to john wybush ten pounds eight gentlemen are enumerated likewise to our yeomen and grooms eleven shillings apiece and to all the children of our house ten shillings apiece and we give to the duke of cleves our brother a ring of gold with a fair diamond and to our sister the duchess of cleves his wife a ring having therein a great rock of ruby the ring being black enamelled also we give to our sister the lady Amelie, a ring of gold having thereon a fair pointed diamond and to the lady catherine duchess of suffolk a ring of gold having a fair table diamond somewhat long and to the countess of arundel a ring of gold having a fair table diamond with an h and an i of gold set under the stone moreover we give and bequeath to the lord paget lord privy seal a ring of gold having therein a three-cornered diamond and to our cousin the lord waldeck a ring of gold having therein a great fair hollow ruby moreover our mind and will is that our plate jewels and robes be sold with other of our goods and chattels towards the payment of our debts funerals and legacies and we do further bequeath to dr simmons our physicon towards his great pains labors and travails taken oftentimes with us twenty pounds and to allard our surgeon and servant four pounds and to our servant john gulai over and above his wages ten pounds and to every one of our alms children towards their education ten pounds apiece to be delivered according to the discretion of our executors also we will and bequeath to the poor of richmond bletchingly hever and dartford four pounds to each parish to be paid to the churchwardens at the present and to be laid out by the advice of our servants thereabouts dwelling and to our chaplains sir otho rampello and to sir dennis toms either of them pray for us 
five pounds and a black gown and to our poor servant james powell ten pounds and to eliad turpin our old laundress to pray for us four pounds and to our late servant otho willock twenty pounds and our will and pleasure is that our servants sir otho rampello arnold ringlebury john gulai john solenbrow derrick passman arnold Halgins, and george hagalas being our countrymen and minding to depart out of this realm of england shall have towards their expenses every one ten pounds and we bequeath to thomas pierce our cofferer to thomas haw our clerk comptroller and to michael apsley clerk of our kitchen for their pains with us taking sundry ways over and beside their formal wages ten pounds each and our will and pleasure is that our said cofferer who hath dispersed much for us for the maintenance of our estate and household should be truly paid by our executors likewise all other of our servants that hath dispersed any money for us at any time if they have not been paid the residue of all our goods plate jewels robes cattle and debts not given or bequeathed after our funeral debts and legacies we give and bequeath to the right honourable nicholas heath archbishop of york and lord chancellor of england henry earl of arundel sir edmund peckman and sir richard preston knights whom we ordain and make executors of this our last will and testament and our most dearest and entirely beloved sovereign lady queen mary we earnestly desire to be our overseer of our said last will with most humble request to see the same performed as shall to her highness seem best for the health of our soul and in token of the special trust and affiance which we have in her grace we do give and bequeath to her most excellent majesty for a remembrance our best jewel beseeching her highness that our poor servants may enjoy such small gifts and grants as we have made unto them in consideration of their long service done unto us being appointed to wait on us at the first erection of our household by her majesty's late father of most famous memory king henry the eighth for his said majesty said then unto us that he would account our servants his own and their service done to us as if done to himself therefore we beseech the queen's majesty to accept them in this time of their extreme need moreover we give and bequeath to the lady elizabeth's grace afterwards queen elizabeth my second best jewel with our hearty request to accept and take into her service one of our poor maids named dorothy curzon and we do likewise give and bequeath unto every one of our executors before named towards their pains namely to the lord chancellor's grace a fair bowl of gold with a cover to the earl of arundel a maudlin standing cup of gold with a cover to sir edmund peckman a jug of gold with a cover or else a crystal glass garnished with gold and set with stones to sir richard preston our best gilt bowl with a cover or else that piece of gold plate which sir edmund leaveth if it be his pleasure most heartily beseeching them to pray for us and to see our body buried according to the queen's will and pleasure and that we may have the suffrages of the holy church according to the catholic faith wherein we end our life in this transitory world these being witnesses thomas pierce our cofferer thomas haw our comptroller john simmons doctor in physic etc also dorothy wingfield widow susan boughton dorothy curzon gentlewomen of our privy chamber bedchamber 
with many others, and by me, Dionysus Thumau, chaplain and confessor to the same noble lady, Anna of Cleves. Two days after the dictation of this will, the repudiated queen of England expired peacefully at the palace of Chelsea. Her beneficent spirit was wholly occupied in deeds of mercy, caring for the happiness of her maidens and alms children, and forgetting not any faithful servant, however lowly in degree. She was on amicable terms both with the Catholic Mary and the Protestant Elizabeth, and left both tokens of her kindness. Although she was a Lutheran when she came to this country, it is very evident from her will that she died a Catholic. Queen Mary appointed her place of burial in Westminster Abbey, where her funeral was performed with some magnificence. A hearse was prepared at Westminster, with seven grand palls, as goodly a hearse as ever seen. The 3rd of August, my Lady Anne of Cleves, sometime wife of Henry the Eighth, came from Chelsea to burial unto Westminster, with all the children of Westminster of the choir, with many priests and clerks, and the grey amis of Paul's, and three crosses, and the monks of Westminster. My Lord Bishop of London, Bonner, and my Lord Abbot of Westminster, Feckenham, rode together next the monks. Then rode the two executors, Sir Edmund Peckham, and Sir Richard Preston, and then my Lord Admiral, and my Lord Darcy, followed by many knights and gentlemen. After her banner of arms came her gentlemen of the household and her head officers, and the buyer chariot, with eight banners of arms and four banners of white taffeta, wrought with fine gold. Thus they passed St. James and on to Charing Cross, where was met a hundred torches, her servants bearing them, and the twelve Betas men of Westminster had new black gowns, and they had twelve burning torches and four white branches, then her ladies and gentlewomen, all in black on their horses, and about the hearse sat eight heralds bearing white banners of arms. These white ensigns were to signify that Anne of Cleves had lived a maiden life. At the abbey door all did alight, and the Bishop of London and my Lord Abbot in their mitres and copes received the good lady, sensing her and her men did bear her under a canopy of black velvet, with four black staves, and so brought her under the hearse and there tarried dirge, and all the night with lights burning. The next day requiem was sung for my lady Anne, daughter of Cleves, and then my lord of Westminster, Abbot Feckenham, preached as goodly a sermon as ever was made, and the bishop of London sang mass in his mitre. And after mass, the lord bishop and the lord abbot did sense the corpse, and afterwards she was carried to her tomb, where she lies with a hearse and a cloth of gold over her. Then all her head officers break their staves, and all her ushers break their rods, and cast them into her tomb. And all the gentlemen and ladies offered at mass, my lady of Winchester was chief mourner, and my lord admiral and lord Darcy went on each side of her, and thus they went in order to a great dinner, given by my lord of Winchester to all the mourners. Anne of Cleves is buried near the high altar of Westminster Abbey, in a place of great honor, at the feet of King Siebert, the original founder. Her tomb is seldom recognized. In fact, it looks like a long bench against the wall on the right hand, as the examiner stands facing the altar, near the oil portraits of Henry III and King Siebert. On closer examination, her initials A and C, interwoven in a monogram, will be observed on parts of the structure, which is rather a memorial than a monument, for it was never finished. Not one of Henry's wives, excepting Anne of Cleves, had a monument, observes Fuller, 
and hers was but half a one. It is evident that reports were spread throughout the courts of Germany, that the residence of Anne of Cleves in England was a detention full of cruelty and restraint. These ideas gave credence to an impostor, who presented herself, in a state of distress, at the palace of John Friedrich II, Prince of Coburg, and pretended to be the Princess of Cleves, repudiated by Henry VIII. She was a long time entertained by the hospitable prince as his kinswoman, but was finally proved to be a maniac, and died in confinement. End of section 19